This episode of Backtalk is brought to you by longtime bitch media sponsor Gladrags, who bring you all the essentials for a safe, sustainable period. Learn about cloth pads and menstrual cups when you sign up for their newsletter at gladrags.com and be entered to win a mini cloth pad starter set. Make sure you tell them Backtalk sent you. listening to Backtalk, the snappy feminist response to This Week in Pop Culture. I'm Sarah Merck. And I'm Amy Lamb. Okay, so special announcement, Amy, uh, you are not in the same room with me right now. We are talking over Skype. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm uh, probably, I think, a little less than a thousand miles away in California. How's Uh, how's California? How are the drought lands? It's, uh, I don't want to say it's beautiful because that part is sad, but uh, the food in every part of California is amazing. You're in the Bay Area? Yeah, I'm in the Bay Area now. And I was also in Southern California. And so I like I have different regional things that I like to eat depending on where I am. And so in Southern California, I eat mostly East Asian food. And then in the Bay Area, I eat mostly South Asian food. Um, so that's how I roll. <laughs> so what's been the best what's been the best meal so far? Uh, oh, that's tough. Um, well, I had a really good um, sort of like uh, Indian lunch, um, out here. I think it was in Fremont. I forget because all these cities kind of mesh together. These suburbs mesh together for me at this place called the Dosa Hut, which is like this hole in a wall with like uh, no ambiance, but I just randomly stumbled in and got a to-go order and I was totally rubbing on it and it was so good and it was vegetarian. Um, so it's much appreciated. And you're like, this hut full of dosas is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I like how we're talking about this for back talk. <laughs> It's important. It's news you need. Go look up the Dosa Hut in some city in California. Great. So on our agenda this week, Amy, we're talking about the ACLU investigating sexism in Hollywood, online harassment, and nail salons in New York and exploitation of workers. All right. Ready? Yes. Let's go. All right. So first up, we're talking about um, this big announcement from the ACLU. They uh, what's, what's the news, Amy? You want to tell us? Yeah, so they recently, well, it was yesterday, they sent a letter to the equal employment offices, that the regional ones in Los Angeles, so it was the ACLU of Southern California, to say, like, hey, I think that uh, you all should investigate the, you know, the entertainment industry in Hollywood for gender discrimination, and that actually um, the underrepresentation of female directors is uh, in violation of the equal opportunity laws um, that make um, discrimination based on like race, uh, gender, religion, and makes that illegal. So the lack of female directors in Hollywood might become a legal issue, which is like unprecedented and super interesting. Yeah, I think this is so cool because we've talked forever about the lack of women in Hollywood. And I've been talking for years about um, how there's not enough female directors and how women in the industry are like sort of shoved out or pigeonholed in a lot of different ways. But, you know, it's never crossed my mind that it should be like a legal investigation like gender bias in any other industry would be. You know, I've always just sort of been like, well, that's the Hollywood culture. We need to change the culture of filmmaking. And they still use like, no, you need to investigate this because it's against the law. Right. It's it's super funny because like for you and I and, you know, other people who write criticisms on um, pop culture, like this is something that we've known forever that, yes, like women's voices and like people of color and other, other marginalized voices um, don't get fair play in Hollywood. But 
we never thought to frame it in a legal way. We just thought like, it's just the way it is. And, yeah. Well, uh, at least, at least I didn't, I was, I, I've never been like, you know, the, the film industries need to be investigated for their lack of hiring and promoting female directors. I've been like, we just really need to like put more pressure on them as movie fans. And so it's kind of, it's cool to see, I think, that ACLU promoting this alternate track of, yeah, put pressure on them all you want as movie fans to be more diverse in their filmmaking, but also uh, this is blatant gender discrimination. It kind of shines a new light on it when it's being framed as like a, a discrimin like an illegal discrimination matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really stoked that this happened. Um, and then I had written a piece about it for Bitch Online called... ACLU calls for an investigation of Hollywood sexism. And in that piece, I also kind of linked to this um, this Tumblr called Shit People Say to Women Directors. Um, dot tumblr.com. And that Tumblr is so good. Yeah, it's kind of, it's so heartbreaking too, you know, and it's like, um, like anonymous female directors or other women who work in the industry doing uh, all the t- different types of positions that go into making media, um, film and television and like their stories of the daily microaggressions or even just like full on aggressions that they have to face. And it's just like, it's so mind boggling that these things continually happen and the the like the culture of the, um the boy culture i guess that that's like so deeply embedded in hollywood it's just it doesn't seem to disappear and maybe this will make some change yeah it doesn't seem to disappear and actually like pretty much every year we look at the stats for this and it's always depressing you know like you could write the same article about the lack of women in hollywood every year and you'd always have fodder i think the most recent one the um a really cool center for media that's based at uh, University of California, San Diego, does this annual report called the Celluloid Ceiling, where they look at gender in Hollywood. And they basically looked at how many women are being hired for major film projects, looking at the top grossing films that are made in America every year. And they found that the number of female directors hasn't changed since 1998. You know, So as much as we've been talking about all these issues over the past 10 years, and there's been a big momentum behind changing the culture, like the numbers are not changing. Okay, the second big news on our radar this week is another big report that just came out. Uh, This one is from a group called Women Action and the Media, who have been looking for the past couple months. They've been monitoring harassment on Twitter. So they actually got permission from Twitter um, to look at the reports of harassment. If somebody's saying something nasty to you on Twitter, you can click report. Then that report, some of them would be filtered through Women Action and Media, and then they would either forward them along to the Twitter company um, or just just look at them and document what was going on. So this report, it basically, uh, it just came out this week and it looks at, it's basically a snapshot of what online harassment looks like on Twitter. You know, and, and online harassment has been such a topic that everyone has been talking about recently. Where we've been talking about trolling and sort of the problems with online harassment. But I think this report really makes it starkly clear what's going on here. It's not just a couple nasty comments or people calling each other stupid. These are... These are violent threats. These are violent threats people are saying online or uh, or things that are or hate speech or things like that that are actually uh, really emotionally and physically powerful in, in real life. So it's not something that you can just say, oh, don't read the comments. It's no big deal. These are people who are being targeted and harassed in really vicious ways that um, that it's important to address. Yeah, I think it's it's. 
it's really helpful and useful when we're talking about online harassment to have statistics and to have numbers and to have like name names for what different type of harassment looks like. If you don't have the numbers and it's just people's anecdotes, you mean? So if somebody says, yeah, I'm being harassed online, you can be like, that's really bad. But if you if you're not in the Twitter world, if you're not like a woman who's on Twitter, you might not know what that looks like and you might not take it as seriously, I think. The highest incident that was reported was hate speech. So people being racist or misogynistic or transphobic to an extent that they thought qualified as hate speech. And then right underneath that, the second biggest offense was doxing, which uh, if people don't know what doxing is. That's when you like threaten to release documents, doxing about somebody's life. So like their address or their birth certificate or uh, their driver's license, some document that like you wouldn't want to have the entire world see. And then the third biggest um, offense was uh, violent threats. So people actually making specific violent threats against somebody else. So it's it's interesting to see like, okay, those are what those are what's is going on when we use the phrase online harassment. Now we have a snapshot that says this is what we're talking about. It kind of like spills over outside of somebody's online life, right? Like if you're getting docs and like your personal information is being released online to who knows who, um, it isn't just like this thing that's happening to your online life. It, it could bleed into your real life life and onto your doorstep. So to take these types of threats up seriously is something that, you know, as a, I think as a culture and um and, and and as we continue to like live so much online, we need to really think about like how we handle these and to take it seriously too. Yeah, I think an, another response that I hear a lot to online harassment is people say like, well, just don't use social media or like that's why I don't use Twitter. And that's sad because it's not that's not a that's not a neutral choice. You know, like there are really important conversations that are happening on Twitter. That is our public square. That's where people get their news. That's where people comment on the news. That is a important space of it's important public space. And so to say to specifically women who are, who are likely to be harassed, oh, just don't just don't get involved in that public space. I think that's totally not the right answer. You know, instead, like that should be a safer space. Right. Definitely. So this report showed that about uh, f from all these reports of harassment, Twitter actually responded and did something about 55 percent of the time. And we don't know from the report, like how effective that response was. We can see that they were either banned or suspended or got a warning, but we don't actually know if that led to an end of the harassment. So that's still an open question. Right. But it's interesting to see that Twitter responded. I think that sounds pretty frequently to me. Yeah. And and also, like like you're saying, even if they got deleted or suspended or warned, it's not that difficult to just create a new Twitter handle and get back onto your harassment train. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure people do that a lot. Yeah. So, it, so it's, you know, it's, it's a bigger a problem than just sort of like deleting or suspending um, users who harass other users. But I think this is a really good like start to a conversation about like how we treat online harassment because uh, the internet's been around for a, a minute or two and um, <laughs> and like we are just now sort of like taking this seriously or talking about this with um, solid numbers behind it and saying like, well, how do we um, keep everyone safe online? Yeah, I feel like the conversation on this has has evolved so much since I started writing online. I've been writing online now for almost for ten years, I guess. Yeah, since I was a teenager, since I was a teenager, um, keeping a blog. And I remember when when I first started publishing articles on a newspaper website, and the comments were just horrible. My mom actually like mailed me a card in the mail that said, "I have I've read the comments, and I just want to let you know that." 
you know, people love you. These <laughs> 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 comments are so bad. So when I first started writing online about 10 years ago, the, the, the feedback was, oh, you just have to have a thicker skin. You just have to be tougher. Just don't take it personally. Just toughen up and then you can write online. And I feel like the conversation has really evolved from that point to now we're saying, you know, the way that people talk about online harassment isn't just you need to toughen up or get out, but we need to make this safer. And the online harassment is a serious, actual thing that, if, that, it, that can be really emotionally affecting you and, and potentially physically affecting your safety. All right. So the last thing we're going to talk about is this New York Times investigation piece um, into uh, nail salons in New York City. And it is so heart-wrenching and heartbreaking and um, and eye-opening. So this it's a I think it's at least two different articles. Um, I think it may, there may be a couple more in the series, but it talks about um, the low wage and also also no wage workers um, in beauty salons who are the women who give uh, you know pedicures and manicures and the types of lives they lead. Um, and then also, so the, the first piece uh, investigates that, and that one's called "The Price of Nice Nails." And then in the second. Um, article in the series called Perfect Nails, Poison Workers, there's more of a focus on the negative health effects of salon workers. So in the first piece, we get an inside look about how a lot of these uh, manicure and salons in New York City uh, are staffed by undocumented immigrants who don't know that they're being underpaid or that it's illegal not to be paid and the conditions in which they have to work. And it's, it's, and it's crazy because also in this piece, they talk about how New York City has the highest concentration of nail salons in America. It just juxtaposed um, like these poor women who sometimes, you know, they don't get paid for the first uh, maybe weeks, months of work because the owner says that they're being they're training the workers. So therefore, they shouldn't be allowed to get paid. And they're working like maybe 10 hour days and they're sitting there and they're holding the hand of maybe a woman, you know, on Madison Avenue, who a wealthy woman who's getting her nails done. And it's like like the juxtaposition of these two women together in a room. And um, just to like picture that and to think about what this means in in the economy of women's work, it's just like it's taken a really long time for the story to even come out. And I'm really glad it did. But it was just so heartbreaking. I think this story is so powerful because it combines both really good personal anecdotes and stories that are really humanizing where you get to know some of the women who are working in these salons with like indisputable facts and such a broad range of numbers, you know, so you get to know these women and they're being picked up on the street in Queens and the Bronx and driven into Manhattan to work like ungodly shifts, like 10 to 12 hours every day of the week. But then it's saying that it's not just like a couple bad apple salons that are doing this. It's like a system where the system is that for your first month or three months of work, you don't get paid. And that's like, that's how the nail salons work, you know? And then after that, you maybe get paid up to $30 a day. Right. And, I think of, and I think often like, you know, you walk past a salon and you're like, oh, that place looks kind of gross. It seems kind of cheap. I hope that workers are being treated well. And it's like, no, it's not just that one or two salons. It's like, this is how, this is how nail salons function for thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. And it's interesting because they actually even interview some of the salon owners and they're kind of unapologetic about it. You know, they're like, they're like, if we don't treat these workers this way, 
we can't offer these manicures for such a low price. So that's another big issue because manicures are not that expensive. Um, and the reason why they're not that expensive is because these workers are being exploited. And the owners are, you know, there's that part where they're like, well, what else do you want to do? Do you want to pay more? Um, so there's that piece. And then there's also another piece where the workers are like, actually, I'm giving these undocumented workers a chance at making money. So in fact, I'm giving them an opportunity. Yeah, those are definitely the grossest quotes, yeah. which are from owners who are like, actually, I'm providing these women a really good opportunity to work. And you're like, what? You are terrible. Yeah. You are. And, 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 They're so unapologetic. Yeah. Like they don't see it as a problem, I think, because it is the system. Yeah. You know, it's not like there are a couple bad salons who are like, who are like, oh, yeah, we know that we're not doing what everyone else is doing. Like, this is what everyone is doing. Right. And in the piece, they talk about how um, sometimes the workers have to pay to be trained, you know, if they want to advance to different types of um, doing different types of procedures, like um, to to be able to do waxing or something. They have to pay the salon owners to learn that craft rather than, you know, when we think of work and like advancement, we think about being trained on the job training as part of the job. And we don't pay to do that. Um, and to think that these salon owners think that they're doing, you know, their workers a, a, a solid by saying, hey, if you give me $100, I'll train you. And like it takes them a week or two to earn that $100. So it's just it's just so insane. And then there's this quote in the in the piece about Perfect Nails Poison Workers um, by this woman, Miss Cologne, who owns a salon. And she says, it's a beautiful industry. It makes people feel better. Uh, but if a lot of people knew the truth behind it, it wouldn't happen. They wouldn't go. And I mean, I really think that if 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 people who um, go to salons on a regular basis to get manicures, pedicures, if they were to really know the truth behind uh, behind their low cost manicures, um, they might really think, you know, again about whether they should be going and or about reforming the system and just pay more for it. Yeah, I think. I mean, everyone's talking about this article. It's on. It's on a lot of people's radar, and I think one of the big conversations that's come out of it is like, okay, what do we do now that we know about these conditions? What's, what's a good response. And I think that I'm, I'm happy to see that, that the governor of, of New York um, issued like an emergency declaration on Sunday about the salon saying that we need to um, investigate these salons to make sure that they're paying everyone fairly. So that's like a, a sort of a system wide policy approach, but then also as if you want to go get a manicure what's the best way to do that? You know, is it going to a salon that charges $30 instead of 10? Like, that's no guarantee that the worker is actually getting that money. Or do you go and like tip the worker 100%? Right. But even if you tip the worker 100%, there's no guarantee they'll get to keep that money, like from the way the stories are being told. You know, it's yeah. just, it's, uh, it just needs across the board, um, like better regulation and serious reform. Um, and, you know, like paint your nails at home and it isn't that difficult. <laughs> I mean, but but then there's also another piece then like, well, what will these women do then? I mean, that was a piece I was thinking about, like, if they don't have these jobs, like, um, can we can we then put them on another track for a different kind of work? Uh, so there's so many questions that these that these pieces opened up, but I'm grateful that they that this was being investigated. If there was like an ethical nail salon that was like worker owned I would totally go to that I think that's completely possible too maybe somebody should start up like a sweet co-op of nail salon workers in New York that can do awesome nail art and have proper ventilation and pay all their workers well that that is the dream <laughs> it's the dream the impossible dream <laughs> 
All right, we're at the end of the show. So this is the part where we talk about one thing we read, one thing we saw, and one thing we heard this week. Amy, I think you're on tap for what you read. Okay, so I just wrapped up this novel by um, an Asian-American writer. Her name is Celeste Ng. And this novel is called Everything I Never Told You. And um, at first I was kind of skeptical about whether or not I'd be into it. But then I ended up staying up to like 5 a.m. one a couple nights ago to finish it. Because I was like, I need to know what happens. Uh, so this novel is framed around the mysterious drowning of the middle child in this family and uh, she's the first daughter and uh, the family is the parents are um, a Chinese American dad and a white um, mom and it is set in like the 70s so there's a lot of uh, there's the component of race where the father feels like uh, because he has had to deal with a lot of issues surrounding his race. And then he sort of projects that onto his children. And then the mom um, has this um, misplaced ambition because she didn't get to achieve her goals. And I'm speaking about this really vaguely because I don't want to spoil anything. Um, and so she also projects that onto um, her kids. Uh, so it, it it's such it, – and it's, and it's essentially a story about like family secrets and and what happens when – when we keep too much stuff inside, then we don't talk about um, what our true desires are. Cool. So what's it called? It's called Everything I Never Told You. And it was like on a bunch of must-read lists, lists last year, and that's why I grabbed it. Cool. Um, so then we're going to talk about one thing we saw. And you want to talk about a, a thing you watched online, right? Yeah. So um, it's it's like this... It's this weird uh, YouTube channel, and it only has two videos on it. And the YouTube channel is called Red Table Talks. And um, the two videos is one is a preview to the Red Table Talks, and the other is like an outtake of the Red Table Talks. And so far in this these two videos, it's like the same of the same taping. And what it is, it's uh, Jada Pinkett Smith and Jada Pinkett's mom, Adrian Banfield Jones. And Willow Smith, um, Jada Pinkett Smith's daughter with um, Will Smith. And they're all just kind of like sitting around a red table and chatting. But in this one clip that they have online um, called Red Table Talk Exclusive with Willow Smith, um, there's like this discussion that Willow Smith gets into about what her grandmother and what her mother means to her. And uh, I know that like uh, Mother's Day was just last Sunday, but like listening or watching this and watching her get really emotional and be thankful for having her mother and her grandmother in her lives and like, and what their relationship is like. And there's this like amazing clip of her talking about Willow Smith, talking to her mother about what her mother's history means to Willow Smith that I want to play. Um, and you should watch the whole, whole clip. But it's super interesting because Willow Smith is only, I think 11 in this clip and she has such like thoughtful and insightful things to say about what it means to be a daughter. Okay, well, let's listen to a little clip of it right now, and then we'll link the whole thing on our website, bitchmedia.org. And I think that we need to talk more about who you were and who I want to be. Mm. Okay. All right. Okay. And, like, I feel like I, like, hit, like, a spot where it's like, this is what I want to do, not all of that other stuff. Right. Like recording, piano, dance, all of that can go out the window. I want to get down to know who real Jada is and who real Gimme is. You th 
All right, as long as you're ready. <laughs> okay, so that was a clip from an interesting YouTube channel called Red Table Talks. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Amy. What a weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of right. I found also that? like three years old, but but I saw it. So <laughs> glad you found that. Um, so I want to talk about a band that I, one thing I heard this week, uh, I am a sucker for any kind of music that sounds like Beach House, basically like sort of uh, minimalist bedroom dream pop. That is my genre. So this is a band called Bouquet that's out of Los Angeles. And this is the song called In a Dream is going to play us out. Um, so thanks, Bouquet. I don't know about you, but now I do. Thanks for making this song. Talk is a podcast that's hosted by Amy Lamb and Sarah Merck and is a production of Bitch Media. Our producer is Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener supported feminist nonprofit. If you like Backtalk and want to support our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. This episode of Backtalk is brought to you by longtime Bitch Media sponsor Gladrags, who bring you all the essentials for a safe, sustainable period. Learn about cloth pads and menstrual cups when you sign up for their newsletter at gladrags.com and be entered to win a mini cloth pad starter set. Make sure you tell them Backtalk sent you. In a dream.